Right, you can be seated. We're continuing with our study of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We're on question number 25 today about the priestly office of Christ. In our sermon series on the Catechism, we've been looking at the offices that God the Father gave His Son to fulfill. Remember I told you that an officer is one that is sent to carry out a task, of an official task. He has authority to do that. In the case of Jesus, it was the Father who sent Him and authorized Him to fill the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king. The one who appoints an officer is also responsible to provide that officer with what he needs in order to do his work. If he doesn't have uh, the tools that he needs, then he can't carry out his work. In the case of Jesus, it was the Holy Spirit that was given to him without measure so that he could fulfill the offices he had. He is called, because he was anointed with the Holy Spirit, he is called the Anointed One. All prophets were given the Spirit for the work, prophets, priests, and kings, I should say, were given the Spirit for the work that they needed to do. Let's confess the question that speaks about Christ's offices. It's question number 23. Question 23, what offices doth Christ execute as our Redeemer? Christ is our Redeemer, executeth the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. So we looked at that question about two weeks ago. And at that time, I pointed out to you that the Catechism follows question 23 with questions that deal with each of the three offices individually. So far, we looked uh, last week at the office of prophet. That's the subject of question 24. And today we'll look at the office of priest, which is the subject of question 25. So let's review uh, the one we did last week, the prophet, question 24. How doth Christ execute the office of a prophet? Christ executeth the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. We saw that Christ is unique among all of the prophets because he not only speaks the message of God, but he actually is the message of God. He is the living word. When we see him, we see the word lived out perfectly in every aspect. When we see him, we see the grace of God that saves us lived out. So he lives out the law and he lives out the gospel grace with even the work that he did on the cross and all that. That is the gospel. Jesus is the word. We also saw that he gets the word out to us, something the other prophets can't do. By now by his written and um, word that is powerfully brought home to us by the Holy Spirit so that we believe and receive it. The prophets could only declare the word. Jesus can actually bring it to our very heart. For this reason, we need to be diligent, though, in the scriptures because that is the tool that he uses to bring his word to us. So we need to eagerly listen to the word that we might believe it and that we might live it, all the while praying for the Holy Spirit to work in us. So that, um, so that we can. So Jesus is the Word. Jesus speaks the Word through His servants. 
And Jesus powerfully applies the word through the working of his spirit. So again, he's unique among all the prophets. No other one could do that. He's been doing that since the very beginning, uh, bringing the word to people in in, in a powerful way. And now this week, we move on to look at the office of priest as given to Christ, as mentioned in question 25. Let's confess this question together. How doth Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executeth the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. For our scripture reading, we'll go to one that very much deals with Christ as a priest. There's a lot of passages we could go to, but Hebrews 10 is sort of a central passage about that. And I'll read the first 25 verses. So please give careful attention. This is the word of God. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those, these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer any sacrifice for, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, 
but exhorting one another in so much the more as you see the day approaching. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. The overall thrust of this passage is that Christ's priestly work perfectly accomplishes the removal of our sins from the record, something that the Old Testament sacrifices could not do. He completely takes away the guilt so that we are completely forgiven and can come to God without condemnation. In many ways, this chapter is a summary conclusion of the chapters that precede it because they all speak about the superiority of Christ's work as priest to all of those who served as priests under the old covenant. And then when you get here, it all comes together with what that priestly work accomplishes for us. And you know, when you get to chapter 11, it begins to talk about believing in the promise. You have the great chapter on faith, and it goes on from there. So uh, this is sort of the, the climax of Christ's unique work as a priest in this chapter. Let's explore his work further. First, we'll look at what the work entails, the work of a priest. Secondly, we'll look at the superiority of Christ's work as a priest, the other priest. And then thirdly, we'll consider how we ought to respond to him as our priest. So first of all, what does the work of Christ as priest entail? The most prominent work of the priest is the offering of sacrifices for sinners. Hebrews 5.1 tells us that every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So the prophet really kind of represents God. He speaks God's word to us from above. And then the priest, you see, he represents us and goes to God in our behalf to offer sacrifices. The offering of sacrifices began immediately after the fall. God clothed Adam and Eve with animal skins, which of course could be obtained through only through the death of the animals and uh, to provide a covering for them. Of course, an atonement is a kind of a covering. And we may assume that the the instruction was given about offerings to Adam and Eve at that time because we find that they are making offerings. Cain and Abel are doing so as a matter of course, something that has been going on. With Noah, we even see before it was revealed by Moses specifically in the uh, books of Moses, he, had, he already knew the difference between clean and unclean animals. God tells him to take the clean animals and do this, take the unclean animals and do that. He had took seven of the clean and, and two of the unclean of each animal. So there was, a, uh, there was already a distinction even in that regard that was made. And there was some revelation that, of course, they wouldn't just know that. Uh, God gave revelation about that that we don't have inscripturated, but we have evidence of it from, from, from those things. At first, the sacrifices appear to have been offered by the father. Uh, When the father died or was unable to serve anymore because of old age or infirmity, then the firstborn son in the family would take his place. That's why the firstborn sons got a double portion of an inheritance because they would look after any of the uh, daughters that were still in the home and uh, a widowed uh, mother. They were responsible to care for them. Under the law of Moses, God appointed the Levites then, and in particular the house of Aaron, to offer sacrifices. 
At that time, detailed regulations were given about the whole priestly service. A tabernacle was built where those were to be offered, and individuals who were not priests were not in any way permitted to offer sacrifices anymore. So it ended the, the, um, the, the priests from the Levites, they took the place of the firstborn sons. These sacrifices were carefully regulated because as Hebrews 8, 4 through 5 explains, they serve the copy and shadow of heavenly things. And so were to be done according to the pattern God showed to Moses. So you willy-nilly started doing sacrifices in your own way or doing them in multiple places or things like that, it distorted the picture that God was giving of the work of his son. They didn't know exactly what that work of the son would look like. And it was not their business then to decide how those sacrifices should be done. It was God's business. The primary purpose of sacrifices was to remove the guilt of sin that condemns man ever since the fall. Again, Hebrews 5.1 tells us every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men and things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. In Leviticus chapters 1 through 6, the various kinds of sacrifices that God commanded under the law are, are described. These sacrifices provide instruction to us about the work of Christ and the various functions of his work of offering as a priest. We will look at them not in the order that they are mentioned in Leviticus 1 through 6, but in the order in which they were offered. Because we're told later about the sequence of which one was to be first in the sequence of offerings and which one was to be done later. So the first one then in that regard was the sin offering and the guilt offering, which makes sense. You deal with that first. The sin offering is described in Leviticus 4. It was offered to make atonement for sin in general. Okay, not for specific sins, but because we're sinners who commit sins. We needed just an offering to cover it all. Its primary feature was the sprinkling of blood on the altar to atone for sin, showing that the animal had died for the worshiper's sin in place of the worshiper. Okay, so the animal was killed instead of the worshiper to pay for sin. The sin offering was the offering that was offered on the Day of Atonement as well. That was once a year when the priest went into the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifices for the whole congregation. It was offered at many other times as well. For example, before other sacrifices were offered to show that sin must be taken care of first. Now, I should mention here on the side that the burnt offering, which we'll look at in a few minutes, it could be offered before this independently as sort of an offering that covered all of these things, sin offering and all of them. But uh, after the Mosaic institution, then it, it became more focused with these different offerings. So that was the first one that was done. You cleanse your sin before you come to God. Uh, The guilt offering goes with it because it was also a sin offering, except it was for specific sins, such as when someone needed to be forgiven for ritual defilement under the ceremonial law, or when they needed forgiveness for sin against their neighbor that required restitution. It's described in Leviticus 5 and 6. So this is the offering that Jesus spoke of in the Sermon on the Mount 
when he told us that we needed to go and reconcile with our brother if he has something against us before we go and uh, go and worship. But the sin offering and the guilt offering teach us that we need to be cleansed from sin before we can approach God. So there's a general cleansing and there's a guilt offering cleansing for specific sins. Jesus Christ, of course, atoned for our sin with his own blood and was shed, that was shed on the cross. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Okay? He was the righteous one who was offered for the unrighteous ones, that he might bring us to God. Okay, so that's the first category, is the sin and guilt offering. That's the first thing that has to be done. Then next in the sequence of the offerings was the burnt offering. The main feature of the burnt offering was that the entire offering was burned on fire at the altar. By this, it showed that God requires us to be completely dedicated to him. It was sometimes also called a dedicatory offering because you were dedicated, wholly dedicated to God. We are to love God, as we know, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so this offering is a picture of that being offered to God, the whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, the all, all of us offered to God. Uh, of course, as sinners, we come short of such total dedication. So the burnt offering is a representative substitute. God was saying, inasmuch as you are not totally dedicated to me, and inasmuch as this is required of you, you are to offer a sacrifice that is totally given to me in your place. Jesus was that burnt offering as well, wasn't he? He was totally dedicated to the Father, and in serving as our priest, he not only had to shed blood to atone for our sin, but he also had to represent us as the one who perfectly obeyed the Father. He lived the godly, righteous life that we ought to live. He was poured out for God. His righteousness is imputed or credited to us because our righteousness continually comes short. So even if you had an atonement, your sins are forgiven, how are you going to do what God requires? How are you going to, well, he's that too, you see, uh, one that's wholly given to God in our place. God accepts his total dedication for the sake of the whole church, so that it's as if we have done all that is required, because our head has done all that is required, our priest has done all that's required. So we have the sin or guilt offering first, then the burnt offering, And then the third kind is the peace offering and the grain offering. These came last in the sequence. These offerings are described in Leviticus chapter 2 and 3. The primary feature of these offerings is that they are shared between the worshiper, the priest, and the Lord. They all get a portion. With the grain offering, there is thanksgiving to God for the harvest, and the worshiper eats before the Lord. With a portion offered on the altar to God, and a portion given to the priest and his family. And with a peace offering, the worshiper brings an animal, and after the blood is poured out, he offers a designated portion of it to the Lord and eats the rest along with the priest. This offering is also called a fellowship offering because the worshiper has a share in the offering with the Lord. He eats with the Lord. This is what friends do. They eat together and they share. And of course, as the animal offered represents Christ, it shows that we are spiritually nourished by Christ, the one in whom the Father also delights. The peace offering is, and interestingly, of course, Christ 
ate the Passover with his disciples when it was first instituted. The peace offering is prominent at the Passover when the people are nourished by the sacrifice to take their journey that, that they might serve God. You remember how they had the Passover. Um, at the Lord's table, we have communion with Christ, his body and blood nourishing us spiritually as we partake physically of the bread and wine in faith. This reminds us that Christ is the bread of life, that he is our meat and drink for eternal life, that unless we feed upon him, we cannot live. So Christ, our priest, offers a sacrifice. It's all one sacrifice with him. In all these ways, he offers it in all these ways that we see here. To atone for our sins, to be our righteous substitute, and to give us fellowship by his sacrifice. This offering of sacrifices is the most prominent work of the priest, but it's not the only work of the priest. A second task that's given to a priest is intercession. Intercession is the work of the priest in praying for the people that the sacrifice would be applied to them. In the Old Testament, this was represented by the burning of incense, which represents prayer going up to God in behalf of the people. According to Exodus 30, verse 7 through 9, the incense was to be a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. So each morning, Aaron was to maintain the incense offering so that prayers, symbolically prayers, continued for God's people. Of course, there are also examples of actual prayers of intercession in the Old Testament. They are connected with sacrifices being offered for the people. In Psalm 106, for the, the importance of intercession is underscored in describing the work of Moses and how the intercession that he made on behalf of the people brought God's mercy to them. 106.23, it says, Therefore he, the Lord, said that he would destroy them. Okay, that's his threat. Because of our sin, we deserve to be destroyed, wiped out. The Lord said that he would destroy them would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. We see that a lot in the Old Testament, sometimes with the plague coming through and uh, Moses or Aaron or someone would go and stand between where the plague was coming and where it was going and would stop the plague. So we need continual intercession because we stand in constant need of forgiveness and need to have the sacrifices continually applied to us, for us. Uh, That's why the incense in Israel was perpetual. But of course, Christ praying for us, not sweet smells, is what we really need. We are told in Hebrews 7.25 that he ever lives to make intercession for us. Incense should not be burned now that Christ has come. Because we have him. And incense is just a picture. Sometimes the, the high churches of our day have decided that it would be cool to burn incense. You know, that we'll, do, we'll do this uh, ceremonially before the Lord. No, that's an Old Testament thing. We have Christ now. He's interceding. Why do we need sweet smells when we have the, the sweet savor of Christ? In other words, he is perpetually then interceding for us so that we are constantly being cleansed from our sin. 1 John 1, 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
Walking in the light is to walk in the truth revealed about Jesus Christ, believing. And those who do not do that are constantly cleansed. I mean, those who do that are constantly cleansed by Jesus Christ, the priest. We need to be constantly cleansed because we continually come short. But you see, by Christ constantly interceding for us, then his sacrifice is constantly applied. By his intercession, we're initially uh, justified when we first believe, and then we're continually cleansed after we have believed. So the work of the priest is the work of offering sacrifices, it's the first thing we saw, and the work of intercession. There's one other role that the priest is given. Thirdly, the priest is called upon to lead us in the worship of God. He is the one who called us to worship in the Old Testament. That was what the priest would do. It was done by the blowing of trumpets. Who blew the trumpets? The priest did. The priest was also the one who closed the worship by placing God's name upon the people with a benediction, as Aaron was charged to do in Numbers 6, 22 through 23. We're going to have that benediction today at the end of this service. And as those who opened and closed the worship, the priests were also to lead worship and to oversee the worship that it was done according to God's ways. They were to declare God's name, his goodness, his grace, his law. Much of this was done through the appointed ceremonies. It was done in a pictorial way, in an active way. Uh, They were to lead the response of the people in praise and thanksgiving, in the singing of psalms, in the presenting of the offerings of thanksgiving, the grain offering and the peace offering as they uh, had those uh, for the people. As the priest Jesus Christ fulfills this role also as our worship leader. In Psalm 22, we have the prophetic oracle that declares how after God has accepted his offering, that he will call the church to gather in in him. He he will call the church together to declare God's name to them, declare God's work, you see, his name, his his grace, uh, what he has accomplished in our redemption, and to lead us in praise and thanksgiving. In the New Testament, we see how Jesus sent out his apostles from the churches where the word is preached, God's name is declared, and where praise is offered. Prayers and thanksgiving psalms of praise are offered to God. So this is the work that is given, that, that Christ the priest does today. His, his messengers go out in his name all over the world, leading in praise for redemptive grace. In Hebrews 2.12, he promises saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. When does Jesus do that? He does it whenever we gather. He's the head. He's the leader. We need to understand that. He has also instituted the sacraments and has given us commands regarding who may use them and who may not, who is to administer them and who is not. In Hebrews 8.2, he is called a minister or a liturgist, is how the word could be translated, of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. A liturgist is the worship leader. He is our worship leader, and each Lord's Day, we are to obey his call to assemble, to hear the word, to sing praise, 
to offer prayers to him and in his name and to receive the sacrament and the blessing that comes. So there you have the great work of the priest, offering sacrifices for sinners, interceding for sinners, and leading us in worship. I've showed you how Christ carries out the role in this role in the new covenant, which was established after he came into the world. Now let's look secondly at how Christ's priesthood is superior to the priests of the old covenant. How is it different? I'm not going to be exhaustive here, but we'll look at two significant ways that his work is superior. First, Christ's priesthood is eternal, while theirs was both successive and temporal. And do you know what I mean when I say successive and temporal? By successive, I mean that one priest seceded another. One served and then died, and then another took his place. Hebrews 7 speaks of this in verse 23, where it says, Also there were many priests. Why were there so many? Because they were prevented by death from continuing. You couldn't just have one priest for 2,000 years or 3,000 years or whatever because they they died, or for 1,500 years. Uh, They were all men, and they were all sinners, and they died. So there had to be a change in the one that was serving. In contrast, Hebrews 7.24 tells us that Christ, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. But what difference does that make? Where we're told in verse 25, Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He will always be there to reconcile us to God. He will always be there to intercede for us so that we are constantly cleansed from our sins. And in saying that the Old Testament priesthood was temporal, I mean that it was a priesthood that came to an end. It had a time period. It served a purpose until Jesus came, and then it was terminated because Jesus came. And he is a priest forever. That's how he's different. Hebrews 7.21 sets forth this contrast when it says of the Old Testament priests, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This means that we have absolute assurance that Christ will not stop serving as a priest. If we are in him, the day will never come that we will be condemned because of our sin, because we always, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus, and we have him forever. Every sin has been covered by his offering, and he is ever-present to insist that it is so. Let the devil and his friends accuse you as much as they may desire, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He declares the satisfaction that has been accomplished by His offering, and it brings comfort to us as His people. That brings us to the next way that His priesthood is superior. Christ's priesthood is actual, while the work of the Old Testament priests was symbolic. It was mere ritual. This difference is emphasized in the passage that we read from today in Hebrews 10. In verse 1, it says, For the law 
having a shadow of the good things to come and not of the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. You see, those sacrifices did not really take away anyone's sin at all because those sacrifices were shadows of what was to come. A shadow can't do anything. They were outlines and pictures that would have to be fulfilled by Christ. They served a very important purpose in keeping the people looking to Christ and for Christ who is to come. And they give us a foundation today in our understanding of the work of Christ. But they were never meant to be thought to actually atone for sin. As verse 2 points out, if they had truly purified the worshipers, then why were they repeated? If they had accomplished purification, you wouldn't have to keep on offering them. As verse 3 points out, they actually reminded the people of their sins year by year and of their need for sacrifice to take away their sins, for a sacrifice to take away their sins, because they didn't. They were just reminders. Of course, as verse 4 says, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. How could sacrifices like that ever atone for anyone's sin? They could not. They were only shadows of the real sacrifice that Christ came to offer. The real sacrifice is Jesus Christ. In verses 5 through 9, we have an oracle in which Jesus speaks of how God had no pleasure in sacrifices and offerings of the old covenant. It says, but but that he prepared a body for his son so that his son could come and offer himself as the true sacrifice, atoning for sin. God was not pleased with those sacrifices and offerings, but he was pleased with the offering of the body of Christ. Verse 10 says, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Think about what that means sanctified. We've been set apart to God forever because he offered himself. Verse 11 through 13 explain how the offering of Jesus is the sacrifice that truly does the job, taking away our sins and of making us right with God. It says, and every high priest, this is Hebrews 10, 11, and every high priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Once this offering was made, there was no question about it completely restoring us to God. In Christ, we have all the things that we saw were portrayed in the sacrifices of the Old Testament, the, the burnt offering, the fellowship offering, the sin and the guilt offering. We have all of these. We, we have in Christ the offering of full atonement. What more could be required than, than the shedding of His blood? We have the burnt offering, the presentation of one who is wholly dedicated to God and with whom God was well pleased. Here is the one who is wholly harmless and undefiled, separate from sinners. Who else do you need to represent you? Who else could represent you? It is beyond question that he is sufficient. There is no animal burning. This is no animal burned in a fire. This is a man that was perfectly dedicated to the Father, the very Son of God, become man. We have in Christ the fellowship offering, the peace offering. He himself feeds us to nourish us to eternal life. 
He is the bread who came down from heaven. Anyone who eats of this bread has eternal life, Jesus said. He gives us the Holy Spirit who writes his law in our hearts and in our minds. By feeding on him who is crucified, we're enabled to continue in faith and obedience to the end without turning away. We're kept by the power of God through faith in Jesus who is offered. His supply is sufficient to keep us from departing from him forever. This is no mere eating of manna or meat of an animal sacrifice. This is communion with the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a difference it makes to have Christ as our priest. Now we are sanctified by the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Nothing more is needed. Nothing but the application of his finished work to all who belong to him. And now I want to show you how you ought to respond to Christ as God's appointed priest. First, you ought to come to him for salvation. That is the great burden of the book of Hebrews. It is written to the Hebrew people, some of which were having a hard time giving up all the rituals of the old covenant. That's why the whole book shows them that those rituals were designed to point the Hebrew people to Jesus Christ who replaces all of those Old Testament offerings. He is the priest that truly does bring us to God. Why cling to shadows when you have Christ, the reality? But we are strange creatures, aren't we? Somehow we seem to like shadows. It's like a guy who... uh, his wife has been away, and he, he has her picture, and he looks at her picture all the time. Then she comes home, and he keeps looking at the picture. And she says, hey, I'm here. So no, no, I'm, I'm looking at the picture. And uh, why would you do that when she's there? Well, we're strange creatures. We like the old familiar things. We like the old family traditions or whatever it might be. So we need to think about that. What are family traditions that Christians often hang on to and cling to that, that hinder them from a free and full reception of Jesus Christ. Or perhaps the family tradition for you is ritual Christianity that's buried Christ under rituals and ceremonies. Instead of resting in his finished work, there's the lighting of candles. There's prayers to the saints and to angels. There's altars. Altars. Why do we need altars now? Christ is the one that was offered. Incense. He's the one that's praying for us. Choirs. Priests offering sacrifices. All sorts of these these things that are are Old Testament things. God has not not instituted shadows now that Christ has come. We bury Christ under such things when we use them today. As if his work was not adequate. Turns our eyes away from where they need to be. Turns from the, we, we turn to the shadows. You need to turn from the shadows and come to Jesus. Maybe the family tradition for you is a casual approach to God. An approach to God that doesn't take God very seriously. That can be a real problem. You are content to go to a few religious services here and there. But you know, it's not the way of you and your family to make too much of it. You'd be, in fact, a little bit embarrassed to make too much of it. Jesus is a good teacher. He's a good example. He suffered for a good cause. But it's a bit radical and weird to say that he shed his blood to atone for sin. But some people would say, no, your family is content to tip your hat to him. Follow some of his teachings, the ones that you like. But all this about him dying in the place of sinners is a little too much. 
But I tell you that the Holy Scriptures make it perfectly clear that it was necessary for Jesus to do this. And if you do not receive him as the only offering for your sin, then you'll have to suffer the pains of hell forever. You might think that's too extreme, but that's the way it is. It's time to rethink those kind of family preferences and traditions. Maybe your family tradition is that you're quite dedicated to Jesus. You have been taught that God is love, that Jesus loves you and accepts you as you are, and you engage in living in lively worship and evangelism to tell people how much God loves them and to invite them to find um, acceptance in Jesus. You look to him to help you be a better person and to bear life's loads. But for you as well, the whole thing about this stuff that Hebrews talks about, about God being angry at sinners, such that he would send them to hell or anything like that, and about him requiring his son to die in our place, this is a little bit too much for you. You can't think of God like that. You don't want to think of God like that. You don't want to believe that God is like that. It seems almost like uh, child abuse for God to punish his son like that on the cross. You hear, hear people say that about the cross. Uh, well, let me tell you that you need to repent if those are your thoughts because they're blasphemous thoughts. Very popular today. God's grace is most wonderfully displayed in the offering of his son. And the grace and love of Jesus is displayed in dying for us. If you do not receive him as the one who offered himself for your sins, you will perish. However much you claim to love him, however much you might think he loves you. Jesus is the only sacrifice for sin, and without him, you'll die in your sin, and you'll have no atonement. You can't draw up an atonement from anywhere else. The words of Hebrews 10, 26 through 31 apply here, and they are terrifying words. They are very striking words. I remember when I was uh, wrestling my way into understanding of the gospel that Stayed up, stayed up sweating on account of these words in the Bible. Hebrews 10, 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. And now it compares it with the Old Testament. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace, counted the blood of the covenant a common thing, in other words, that Jesus' death was an ordinary death. Yes, the death of a great man, the death of a martyr, whatever, but not where he was bleeding under the wrath of God because of our sins. You just count it as a common thing. So it's, it says you've trampled underfoot the blood of Christ. You've counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, you are sanctified, a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. 
It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's a tendency for many people today to discount the terrifying judgments that we read about in the Old Testament as, well, that's just the Old Testament. Well, let me tell you that just the New Testament is worse than the Old Testament because that's what it says here. How much worse punishment will he be thought worthy who has trampled underfoot the blood of Christ by which he was sanctified? We're here told that it's not softer now, but it is more severe because the revelation is greater. The judgment for that, for rejecting Christ, is far worse than the judgment for rejecting what God instituted in the Old Covenant. There are many other traditions that exclude Jesus, but I am telling you that God commands all men everywhere to repent and to come to Jesus. There is no other offering for sin, no other way to God, but through his sacrifice. And that brings us to the next point about how we ought to respond to him. Once you have received him as priest, you are to find true comfort and delight in him. Yes, it's uh, coming to him as priest. We, we then can rest in that salvation. The passage we read in Hebrews 10 emphasizes the security and assurance that comes when you trust in him. Verse 19 through 22 stresses that we can come into his, the holy presence of God knowing that we are completely cleansed. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Remember that the Old Testament people couldn't go into the holiest place. We have boldness to enter by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near. Who is the high priest over the house of God? That's Christ as well, isn't it? So we have the sacrifice, which is his flesh, and then we have him as the priest over the house of God. Therefore, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Full assurance, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Your sins are totally washed away if you're looking to him. You are clean. There's absolutely no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus, who has him as their priest. It's impossible for you to be guilty when you have Christ as your priest. But it needs to be stressed that this confidence and boldness is not the kind of confidence that's so common today among many professing Christians. The kind that denies that God is holy and that without Jesus as our priest, we would be swallowed up in fiery judgment. That's the wrong kind of confidence. The point is that it is because and only because God's Son was offered up for us that we can come to God with confidence. We are accepted in a place where we would otherwise be completely unwelcome, completely rejected, where we would be completely condemned. Because we have a priest and a sacrifice who is the Son of God, there is in Him absolutely no doubt that if we trust in Him, we are accepted. So there is no place for doubting whether God has forgiven you or for measuring to see if you've done enough for God. I mean, whenever someone talks like that, you know, I don't know whether I've done enough, it's clear that they don't understand the gospel that we rely on Christ. It's not about what we've done or not done. Not based on what you've done, it's based on what Jesus did. Completely giving up on yourself will actually help you to find complete peace in Jesus who died. 
Say, I don't want to be too hard on myself. Well, you should be very hard on yourself, and then you can rest in Jesus. That's the way it works. It will help you to put your trust in Him. Then you can come to God freely and commune with Him joyfully. And then the third way that we should respond grows out of this confidence. Since everyone is taken care of by Jesus, our priest, who comes to Him, then we need to dedicate ourselves to grateful service and stir up each other to grateful service. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 brings this out. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another in so much more, the more as you see the day approaching. When you realize what this priest has done, that he has truly reconciled you to God, then you can't help but live for God and compel other people around you to live for God also. This is not just the result of natural gratitude. He did that for me, so I will serve him. But this is also the result of having Christ as the fellowship offering that we feed upon and are nourished by, who invigorates us, who gives us life. We have true communion in his sacrifice so that we feed on him. And when we feed upon him, we are nourished into service. We grow into service. I talked about that this morning too. We're nourished individually and also as a congregation of his people. His sacrifice energizes us and stirs us up to service, not just psychologically, but it actually in God's marvelous power and grace, the, the Christ works in us through his offering that he made. The promise of God is mentioned in Hebrews ten sixteen that God writes his law in our hearts and minds so that we will obey it. He works in us so that we can live for him. This is the work of the Holy Spirit that Christ gives to us when we have fellowship in his offering as the Son of God. Rejoice and find in him everything that you need. How wonderful it is to have a priest like Jesus Christ. He offers himself as our sin offering, our guilt offering, and our burnt offering, and our fellowship offering. And he is none other than the Son of God. Rejoice and find all that you need in him alone. Please stand. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for a priest like Jesus Christ. We praise you that he is our burnt offering, that he is our sin offering and our guilt offering. We praise you that he is also our peace and fellowship offering. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to find our rest in Christ. There's no other place that we can find righteousness. We can't conjure it up ourselves. We need him as the one that was wholly dedicated to you. And there's no way that we can atone, cover our sins and our guilt. It's only through him crucified. He is the one who covers our sin by his blood. And there's no way that we can obtain life ourselves. We're too hard and too dead. We have to have him giving life through fellowship with his sacrifice. And we pray, Lord, that we would see that that this one who you sent to be our priest is essential for us. 
Just as we saw last week that we need him as a prophet, so we see this week that we also need him as a priest. And we pray, Lord, that we would welcome this priest, that we would not turn aside to other things. We know how easy it is, as Hebrews warns us about, to let these things drift away. We see how that they have drifted away. We look even at this, uh, this church that, that we are meeting in here that, and knowing that this was a place where at one day the gospel was preached and the, the full truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of his atoning work. And then over the years, it ceased to be preached. Little by little, one thing after another was removed until there was nothing left. Father, have mercy. We pray for some of the people that have been deceived by that, that you would draw them back to you, that you would awaken them. Perhaps it was their parents and maybe their grandparents even that were, were led away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. But we pray, Lord, that now in answer to their great-grandparents or their great-great-grandparents' prayers, that you would restore their great-great-grandchildren and that they would be able to return to the Lord and their children to return to the Lord with them. Father, we pray that you would keep us and preserve us in Christ. He ever lives to make intercession. And we pray that from one generation to another, we would be found in him, not resting in our own righteousness by the work of the law or what we do, but resting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, resting in faith, the righteousness that comes by faith in him. Father, please bless us as we go into our week. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to serve you with gratitude and joy, knowing that we have been redeemed and that we would tell the good news to the people around us, that we would have many opportunities to do so, that we would live a life that would draw people to ask us the reason of the hope that is in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.